If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. If you were to look at a Tudor family portrait, you might see the children depicted almost like miniature adults, stridently standing alongside their parents in their doublets and dresses. But how far is this an accurate perception of what childhood was really like in the 16th century? Nicholas Orme is the author of a new book, Tudor Children, and he joined Emily Briffitt to talk about the lives of young people in the era, from the most popular nursery rhymes to bedtime stories, playtime, punishment and more. Hello, Nicholas. It's an absolute pleasure to be chatting with you today. Oh, thank you very much, Emily. I'm very pleased to be here. So we're going to be delving into the lives of Tudor children. But I think the first question that's definitely really important one to cover is how did the Tudors actually define childhood? They had a very definite idea of human life as falling into various stages. And they were slightly different um, versions of the stages uh, going round. But one of them, which is the one referred to by Shakespeare in, as you like it, The Seven Ages of Man, that um, 
defines infancy as 0 to 7, then childhood is 7 to 14, adolescence is 14 to 21 or sometimes 28, and then so on upwards. So they've got a very well-developed idea of infancy and childhood and adolescence as three uh, periods uh, during your growing up. And each has its different characteristics. Would you mind telling us some of the characteristics of each stage? Infancy is when you're growing and feeding, because obviously you do make a big leap in growth between Nolt and Seven. And it's a time when you've got to be closely looked after and guarded. And there isn't thought to be a great difference between the sexes, boys or girls at that stage. And as far as dress is concerned, they both tend to be dressed in quite loose garments. Um, And then when you get to seven, the differentiation between the sexes becomes more important. And so boys are in closer-fitting clothes, and girls in looser ones. So you start to get clothes representing gender. Childhood from 7 to 14 is reckoned to be characterised by the desire to play. And that has implications for upbringing and education, because clearly if a child is going to uh, grow up as a responsible adult, they've got to learn human behaviour, they've got to learn skills and knowledge. So you've got to counteract play with discipline and teaching of some kind or another. And then when you're reaching the age of puberty, of course, you become sexually mature And they believed that intellectual maturity came at the same time, so that from 12 or 14 onwards, you're able to understand uh, right and wrong, or you should be able to, and you're becoming much more like an adult, except that you are still under adult control, uh, as, of course, would be true of a modern teenager, only in Tudor times it goes on rather later because the uh, age of marriage for both men and women is in the mid-twenties. So you're going to be either at home or in somebody's household as a servant up until the time you marry, and therefore you're going to be under that person's control And it's important to understand that they used the word family, not just as we do, of a kinship group of parents and children, but they also used it of a household of parents, children and servants. So when you become a servant, you are part of your employer's family and you are under the same amount of discipline as you would be with your parents. I think perhaps we have a perception of children being treated as almost mini-adults. Was this really the case, or is this a bit of a myth? Well, they are, but I always say, well, that's the same with modern children, isn't it? You know, when I go to see my grandchild, who is um, at the moment coming up to four, she's always made to say goodbye and thank you for coming. 
And when she has her um, supper, you know, she's not allowed to fling the food about all over the place. So there has to be, with the bringing up of a child, an expectation of them being an adult. You are treating them as a small adult. And I don't really see any great difference in that respect between Tudor England and modern England. The old idea was that because you saw children in portraits dressed like little adults, that somehow they were less childlike than they would be today. But the equivalent of those portraits would be something like a wedding photograph where you've got little bridesmaids and little pages. And they, of course, are dressed in miniature uh, adult costume as well. So you have to be very careful about your source and trying to um, elicit... um, ideas of the past from it. I want to ask a little bit about maybe society's perceptions of childhood. What was society's view as a whole on what childhood was? Was it a time that was cherished? Yes, I think it was. It used to be thought in the the sort of mid-20th century that because there was a high degree of child mortality, that parents would have been more indifferent to children's illnesses or accidents and deaths than they are today. And it's very, very difficult to find information. But human nature has not changed. You've got examples of parents recording their children's births and deaths very, very carefully And you've got odd anecdotal evidence in in literature about it. There's a lovely passage in in a school book, which is for boys to translate uh, English to Latin or Latin to English. One of the passages is that um, last year my brother died and my mother was wont to sit weeping for such a long time that it would have made anybody sad to see her. Well, clearly that's... Uh, envisages a mother being as sorry over the death of a child as would be the case today. What dangers did children face in this period? They don't have much in the way of sort of the health and safety procedures that we do nowadays. I mean, one of the, the ways in which we know that children's lives were taken very seriously is that any child who suffers a fatal accident... Um, gets a full coroner's inquest and and a jury inquires into it. And the um, fatal injuries of boys show that they followed their father around so that they are much more likely to result from uh, injuries from tools, for example, or horses going out in the street, uh, uh, helping with a cart or something like that that runs over the child, whereas the girls are following their mother around the house and their accidents are much more likely to be falling into the fire or falling into the well where the mother goes to to get water. How common were things like abandonment or how common was it for children to be orphaned? And maybe was there support available for these children? Yes, I mean, becoming an orphan is is quite possible in the 16th century because the the death rate is much higher than it it is today. They do have arrangements for orphans. 
at the highest end of society, you go into wardship and somebody then takes you over and runs your property for you until you reach uh, the age of marriage in the case of a girl or 21 in the case of a boy. And they have similar sorts of arrangements lower down in society that give an orphan child to the care of relatives or sometimes to other people. There is evidence that children were abandoned, but it does seem to have been in the case of single mothers who really had no method of maintaining them. This was an act of desperation. And it's a calculated act because they tend to be left either on rich people's doorsteps or somewhere where they're going to be found and rescued. Under the Tudors, arrangements began to be made for looking after abandoned children so that uh, in each parish there were officers called overseers of the poor who had to deal with orphans and abandoned children and they had to farm them out to, uh, to people to bring up in their own households and the scheme was financed by levies on the whole population. It wasn't popular, obviously, but uh, it did happen. And one thing that was done in London was to establish Christ's Hospital in the 1550s, which um, didn't cater for everybody, but it did cater for quite a substantial number of both boys and girls. And they're taken in at any age from birth up to about 10, if they're uh, found abandoned. Uh, they're sent out to be nursed when they're very young, out into the countryside where it's healthier. And then when they reach um, early adolescence, they are sent off to be apprentices or servants, essentially. So there is a backup system, or several backup systems in the 16th century, although we would probably regard them as a bit more hit and miss than anything we would be comfortable with today. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
We've spoken a little bit about support systems, but moving back towards parents and parenting in this age, what advice was actually given to parents in caring for their children? How was this knowledge passed down? Did they face the same worries that parents today face? Yes, they would do. The problems of feeding and maintaining a child, of educating a child, of training a child for adult life, these were all problems. I think in a rural village, it was probably a well-understood system, wasn't it? That, you know, they lived at home when they got old enough to go into service, which wouldn't be really until they get to puberty. In towns, children may have started work a lot earlier than that. Uh, We have a very good survey of the poor in Norwich in the 1590s, which show that a lot of children by the age of six or seven were doing work at home. This is because their families were engaged in the fabric uh, trade to in one sense or another in other words um, weaving spinning sewing these are tasks that you can give to a five or six year old the thing about in the countryside I think is that there's not much that you can give a young child to do you can tell them to take the ducks or the or the geese you know to the pond or the or the meadow you might with a sturdy boy send him off to the uh, fields as a bird scarer with a rattle or a catapult or something like that but i don't think it would have been very easy to conscript children into labor in the way that it was in the 19th century when you had large factories and mines and things of that kind and i think that's where a lot of our inherited understanding of childhood comes from from victorian england and we think therefore that children must have very early on been subjected to a kind of adult work pattern again another thing would be chores at home or looking after the younger children so it would have been um a fairly varied life and i don't want to um romanticise it at all, but I don't think it would have been as strict and uh, labourful as we imagine it to be in the 19th century. So my thought is, let's go right back to the start and then we'll work our way through. So the first thing I guess to really ask, child has been born, how, when and why were they named? There are not many names at the beginning of Tudor England in the 1480s and 90s. Boys tend to be called Henry, John, Robert, Thomas, William. Girls tend to be called Anne, Elizabeth, Jane or Joan and Mary. Now there are other names but these are immensely common and the interesting thing to me is that there's no class differentiation here you'll find the same names being used among the nobility as you will among the peasantry and the laboring classes this was a change from the earlier middle ages because if we go back to norman england in the 12th century there's a much much wider range of names in use. And that begins to re-emerge again in the 16th century. One reason is um, the revival of classical learning. You 
start to get names from classical literature and uh, mythology coming in, particularly for girls. Diana, Cassandra, Cynthia, Penelope, Phoebe, tending to be in the upper ranks of society, but gradually trickling down the scale. And then the other thing that happens is the Reformation and the fixation with the Bible and the introduction of names for both boys and girls from the Bible so that you get Daniel, Jacob, Josiah uh, for boys, Judith, Sarah, Susanna for girls coming in. And a bizarre aspect of that is that very strict Protestants, those whom we know as Puritans, go for virtue names like uh, charity and faith or evangelist for a boy and even odder names like free gift, reformation, more fruit, joy again from above. People tended to think that these were were odd, um, and they did represent the sort of fringe of society. They weren't at all uh, typical of what most people chose. Children then start to grow up. What did they do for play? What games were popular? What toys? There are an enormous number of games, and I can't um, pretend to have discovered all of them. There's just vast numbers of them. And there in the categories where you would um, expect children to be interested in. So um, you've got dolls, and dolls are for children of both sexes. They were often made of fabric, in which case they simply haven't survived. Um, Wooden ones were imported in large numbers from Germany and the Netherlands. They're painted uh, uh, truncheons, basically, which you then dress up. And then there are metal dolls and metal toys. And there's a really a big toy industry, not beginning in Tudor England by any means. It goes back to the 13th century. And it's a byproduct of the craftsmen who produce pots and pans, basically. And, and they can use odd scraps for making uh, a moulding. These things are mass-produced, uh, they're little little figures and also little miniature dolls things like uh, little pots, tripods and things of the like. And also um, the forerunners of modern plastic kits. So there are a lot of things to play with and um, they can be bought in towns, as I say, from the sort of hardware uh, sellers and they can be bought at fairs from peddlers. And then you get into games, and just as we have um, sitting-down games of skill, and then we have moving-about games, so they have as well. So the very common sitting-down game is called Cherry Pit, and it's played with cherry stones, dried cherry stones, and you flick, you're flicking them at a hole or you're flicking them at a, a, a pile of stones. And then a game like Nine Men's Morris, 
which is very easy to play because all you need to do is scratch some squares on a flat stone and get some bits of gravel and you can move them around. You also find chess, drafts, backgammon, but that's for the wealthier classes. And then cards are becoming very common in the 16th century. And uh, there's a game called Trump, which it is reckoned that any eight-year-old can play. And uh, what children need in these sort of scoring games is some currency with which to play. And, of course, they haven't got money. This is a problem that interested me for a long time. In the 1950s, a schoolroom in Coventry was excavated and it was discovered that large numbers of small objects had fallen down through the floorboards and were in in the bottom of this excavation. And they were little metal tags like ones you have at the end of laces. The proper name for them is aglets. There were lots and lots of those and pins. And this was the currency that children played with. And I've now found literary references to children saying, oh, well, we'll play for pins. And I've found in an account roll somebody buying a little box so that a child could keep their counters and pins in in this little box. So that's all going on. Then we would have to move to active games which can be just like running around with a windmill which they have or bestriding a a hobby horse a stick with possibly a wheel at the bottom but a a horse's head and then you get on to uh, running and chasing games and finally football which was notoriously unruly, um, which a lot of people spent a lot of time denouncing as a very unsociable and hurtful occupation. It appears you could have any number of players on either side, and it's carried out round the streets or over open countryside, and uh, there is very little in terms of rules This upset the Tudor notion of hierarchy. So the gentry and nobility are told not to play football because they won't their rank won't be be respected effectively. They'll be tackled and chucked in the mud just like anybody else. I want to dive into rules and unruliness in a moment, but one quick question first. I was just wondering. Did Tudor children know any popular nursery rhymes or stories at all? Yes, they did. Uh, And like children today, I think they had certain rhymes which were associated with childhood, what we would call nursery rhymes. But they also picked up the, the pop music of the day as it were, and they would be be singing those as well because they'd hear their elders singing them. Uh, there's one wonderful play by an author called William Wager around about 1570, from what I remember, which actually does have a child character, and he goes through his whole repertoire of about a dozen songs. Some of them are like 
modern nursery rhymes, and others are obviously adult songs, love songs or satirical songs, for example. We've also got one or two rhymes which are very similar to later nursery rhymes. There's the one that um, goes something like Ding Dong Bell with Cats in the Well, and uh, there's Three Blind Mice as well, and they, they occur in um, Tudor songbooks or, er- or very early Stuart songbooks. So th- they are going the rounds, um, but there's, there's a very rich culture of childhood that, you know, we're, we're just getting a few scraps from, but there's no reason to assume that it wasn't just as um, common as today. OK, so I said I'd return to it, and I want to dive into discipline, misbehaviour. What did Tudor children actually get in trouble for? Was it any different from today? Well, there was more physical punishment uh, of children than, than there is today. And I think parents were inclined to lash out in one way or another, both mothers and fathers, incidentally. And that went on to an extent that we wouldn't tolerate. But you have to remember that it was, by our standards, a cruel society. They whipped beggars. They imposed the death penalty for a lot of crimes they could be cruel to animals. There was still bear baiting and bull baiting and um, shooting at birds uh, and this kind of thing. So there wasn't the modern sense that children should be spared from corporal punishment. It wasn't just something for the lesser orders. But the puzzling thing is that when social commentators are talking about uh, punishment, they are always saying there isn't enough of it. And uh, there's a kind of indignation throughout 16th century England that children are being brought up badly, they're not being corrected, they're um, using rude words to their parents, the child will call his uh, mother whore and father cuckold uh, comes up more than once. And uh, this is because parents are too soft and don't correct their children. So although we've got plenty of examples of corporal punishment, we've also got plenty of examples of people saying it's not working. So what is the truth? I don't know. So I'd like to move on a little bit from punishment. What education opportunities were there for Tudor children? And at what age did this happen? Well, education in the sense of learning adult skills is is something that all children will have. All children, to an extent, will be brought up to behave and, and to do things. And that, of course, is education as well. If you're talking about rather more narrowly about schooling... There's a lot more of that around than you would think. And um, in the Norwich census of the poor in the 1590s, uh, which I've mentioned, I think 15% of the children of the poor were at school, even though that's the part of society where you would have thought there would have been the least of it. And once you move up the scale into the wealthier classes, it's pretty common. 
in the 16th century. And that is, I think, confirmed by the enormous amount of printed literature that is produced. The reason why printing is invented, of course, is that there is a hunger for written literature, which manuscript production cannot satisfy. Technological advances are fueled by popular demand. And so printing is itself a sign that literacy is becoming very common and the desire to read is very widespread. There is also another thing which I think is very important in the history of education, and that is status-seeking. And in fact, it's absolutely basic, it seems to me, to education, that the desire that your children shall get on in life, that shall somehow do better than you have done, and also that if your kids are going to school, or a good school, that's better than next door's who are going to an inferior school or or no school at all. And it's not something that everybody could afford. Therefore, the fact that you can afford it is a status point. So I think there was very widespread elementary education, which was learning to read, because that could be easily provided partly by parents to their own children, if they were literate. But it was possible to make a bit of a living. And women often do this, what later on will be called dame schools, a woman having a little class in her house. And this can be combined with teaching textile skills as well. So the woman can be doing some weaving or sewing or whatever it is. She can be teaching the girls to do that. She can also be teaching them to read. And the parents are getting two things for their money, as it were. They're getting literacy and a textile skill. When you get beyond elementary education, then there's a gender difference. Boys go to school, or at least boys with sufficient ambition in their families and sufficient money because secondary education, grammar school education, costs a lot more than learning to read. Girls don't go to grammar schools. There are none for them. But they are, in the upper ranks of society, educated at home. And increasingly in the 16th century, they're being educated in Latin. If we'd gone back to 1400, say, I would have said, well, a noble and gentle boys are going to grammar school and the girls are learning, yes, they're learning to read French and English, perhaps, but not Latin. Now, as you get into the 16th century and classical Latin is becoming fashionable and essential for upper-class life, girls are beginning to learn Latin and, in some cases, Greek Italian, Spanish as well. And uh, the acme of this is at the very top of the aristocracy with women like Lady Jane Grey and Queen Elizabeth I, who are remarkably skilled in languages, both classical and modern. And Elizabeth was capable of composing in Italian and translating from 
Latin into French and Italian and actually remained able to do it throughout her life and and often did it for pleasure, in fact, as something to do, just to, to do some translating. It's a much more educated society than you would expect. And uh, as I've said before, the fact that there's such an enormous amount of literature produced, I mean, we have hardly any of it because this popular literature that was produced very cheaply just haven't survived in most cases. They, they're like comics. They were read to pieces. So although we've got hundreds, if not thousands of books of one kind or another from Tudor England, uh, there were many, many more that hadn't survived at all. What about opportunities like apprenticeships? Did children take on these in the Tudor period? Apprenticeship is mainly associated with the middle classes of society. It's not something that the poorest go into because there's often um, a charge for it. You have to pay to become an apprentice. It's also a long period of time. It's a seven-year period. So it's quite an undertaking. But it's very common in the middle classes of society, and particularly those who live in towns. It's mainly for boys, although there are some girl apprentices, again, in, in the textile trades. But it's mainly boys. And it starts probably round about puberty at about 14 and typically then goes into the early 20s. You move into your master's household, you become subject to his authority, as I was saying earlier to you, and you sign a document known as an indenture because it's actually in two halves. The apprentice keeps one and the master keeps the other half, and it lays down that you are to be obedient to him in all things. You are not to engage in gambling or drinking or following the other sex. You are to be taught the whole of the skill of the trade or or craft without anything being hidden from you. And then when you finally finish your apprenticeship, you often have to serve a further year as an employee at a wage as well. But uh, from that stage onwards, you are then free either to set up your own business or to go to work for somebody else for regular wages. The place that had most apprentices was London, and they form quite a social group among themselves, uh, sometimes against one another. It it has to be said, I think there will probably be gang rivalries between different trades. But the, the apprentices do all come out together at certain times. On Shrove Tuesday, they attack the brothels. I've never really understood why this is, except that Shrove Tuesday was a bit of a free-for-all, do-what-you-want day. And they also are inclined to get involved in riots about one thing or another because they are often kept down by the authorities. The authorities, as I've said, are very free with corporal punishment. And you can be punished by the elders of your guild uh, for misdemeanours. So there's a, a bit of a them and us 
between the apprentices and the city authorities. There's also um, a dislike of foreigners. There's the famous ill May Day in the 1510s when the apprentices gathered together to attack the Lombards, the Italians and the Flemings, Dutch and French, uh, who they see partly as aliens because they, they wear slightly different clothes and have different accents, and also as competitors. They are uh, impinging on our trade uh, in, in some way or another. So there was this tremendous riot in the 1510s, uh, which lasted on one particular May day. The authorities knew it was going to happen. Cardinal Wolsey was then in charge, and he told all masters to keep their servants at home on May day. But unfortunately, the instructions were not properly publicised. And so a lot of young men gathered together because it was a holiday. And then when aldermen tried to disperse them, they resisted and there was this riot and then it turned into attacks on the aliens. Uh, The authorities put it down mercilessly. I think 15 or so apprentices were executed, hanged. And in the end, the, all the others who'd been arrested and imprisoned were brought before Henry VIII with um, nooses round their necks as a sign that they deserved to be hanged, but the king pardoned them all. And there was a sequel to this in the 1590s when Shakespeare's company wanted to put on a play about Sir Thomas More. And More had tried but failed to appease the riot. But Shakespeare wrote a marvellous speech for more to give to the rioters. But in the end, the play came to nothing because the censor wouldn't allow it. The the censor was worried that um, putting this riot on the stage would simply set off other riots. So what about reading? What did children read? What do they have access to? Well, as I've said, You've got printing in the 16th century, and printing makes books much cheaper. There were uh, books produced by hand before Caxton, but they're necessarily rather expensive. Once uh, Caxton sets up in 1476, it becomes possible to produce cheaper books. And the interesting thing about Caxton is that when he starts and produces what you would now call a publisher's list. Four of the items are for children. So he's actually not only the first English printer, he's the first English children's publisher. They're they're not what we would consider very uh, amusing, but they are for parents to give to or use with their children. Um, Caxton didn't go into the popular literature market very much. But the next generation of printers, wink into word, Richard Pinson, who are starting to print in the 1490s, they are going for uh, cheap, uh, mass-produced, simple reading stuff. And the most popular 
book, as it turns out to be, is called A Little Jest of Robin Hood. It's a 15th century work in which somebody has tried to cobble together several of the traditional stories about Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham. And it remains in print throughout the 16th century. It's immensely popular for all sorts of reasons, um, because it's English, it's about archery, which was a great recreational activity in the 16th century, was also seen to be essential for England's defence. Robin Hood is a subversive book as well as being amusing because it's cocking a snook at the authorities. It's about deer poaching and living this free life in the Greenwood and having a row with the Sheriff of Nottingham who ultimately gets shot with an arrow by Robin Hood, gets his comeuppance, as do various abbots and and monks. The other things that are read are medieval romances. And here, the the three famous ones are Valentine and Orson, Guy of Warwick, and Bevis of Hampton. And they're all much the same sort of story in which boy grows up, has adventures, goes on crusades, meets girl, has all kinds of troubles, gets involved with giants and monsters, and finally uh, all comes to be well. They are immensely popular with child readers, and they are becoming increasingly irritating to the authorities. And here the Reformation, with its much more critical attitude to pleasure, becomes important. And we find the Reformation writers, beginning with William Tyndale in the 1520s, attacking them. We think of Tyndale as a great liberator, but I'm afraid one also has to say that um, Tyndale had his repressive and restricting side, and he said, you know, you shouldn't allow children to read any of these things because it's leading them into bad habits. The comforting thing is that it didn't work and that Tudor children went on reading about Robin Hood and uh, Guy of Warwick, despite what all the Puritans said, which I think tells us something about Tudor children, that we shouldn't regard them as passive, but they had uh, their own way of holding their own, both in what they read and in their games of football and tennis, um, up against walls and in streets that annoyed their elders. That was Nicholas Orme. His book, Tudor Children, is out now, published by Yale. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Queen.